0: în economia partidei delgato, acolo este... va fi e, cornel, dragi ascultatori... De... The eldest member of KISS, Peter was born at Greenpoint Hospital in the East Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York City on December 20th, 1945. He was the first child of Joseph and Loretta Criscola, an unemployed 21-year-old and his 17-year-old wife. The couple would go on to have four further children, Nancy, Joey, Joanna, and Donna. But for the first seven years of his life, Peter was the focus of his parents' attention. Peter's father's job situation was never stable. Peter Chris recalled in his autobiography, Make Up to Break Up, Peter writes He worked in a factory for a while making car parts. He fixed cars at a garage. But the best job he had was buffing the floors at the UN building. His grandmother also worked multiple jobs, and it certainly wasn't an easy life for the family. There was food on the table, and Peter fondly recalled the family celebrating Christmas with gusto. For Kiss fans, and our insatiable desire for minutiae, there has long been contention concerning his real name, a result of incorrect stories published in various books that omit both the context and the facts. According to C.K. Lent, In his 1997 book, Kiss and Sell, Peter's first name was George, and Chris suggested that Peter had seemingly forgotten this fact when he attempted to have his name legally changed during the 70s. The court documents he filed would be returned to him as invalid because the name he had listed as his then true name did not match the name that was listed on his birth certificate. There is some audio evidence of this with Gene and Paul hollering at George perhaps to annoy him, to pick up the beat on some later Kiss rehearsal tapes for the Rock and Roll Over tour in 1976. Even his brother continues to refer to him as Georgie. Let's see if we can make sense from available facts and evidence. Peter's birth certificate, issued December 26, clearly lists his birth name as George Criscola. However, by the time he was baptized at the Church of All Saints on February 8th, He was listed as Peter George. His 1970 passport also lists this name. Still, Peter asserts in his autobiography that his full name is Peter George John. Peter's parents had married on April 11th of the year of his birth. That's the raw data, so let's correct the record. There is absolutely no confusion about Peter's name and Peter's family. Peter finds it absurd to suggest otherwise. He was born Peter George Criscola. Unfortunately, the hospital simply made an error on the birth certificate, one that was never corrected. Having been born prematurely to a young mother, there were other more important matters at hand. After his birth, Peter had been briefly sick and lost the full head of hair he had been born with. Being brought to his mother, She initially thought they brought her the wrong baby. Peter's pet name from his mother was Georgie, one that others often picked up and used. Peter's father also had a pet name for Peter, Baby, due to him having been his firstborn. He was also sometimes lovingly called Bubba. Peter has himself also noted in his book that he was named after his paternal grandfather, who had been born in Naples in 1871. That George, the name of both his maternal grandfather and uncle, was only used as a nickname is hardly surprising. Peter has recounted that his grandfather had run off from his family, abandoning his grandmother Clara. As a side note, Peter's namesake, Pietro Raphael Criscola, likely immigrated to the United States from Scafati, Italy, arriving at Ellis Island on the good ship SS Algeria. On February 23rd, 1906, he and his eldest children had initially settled in Connecticut before moving to 19 Delmonico Place in Brooklyn. Like many immigrants at the time, his name was Americanized. It is from his mother's side of the family that Peter's Irish-German heritage originates. The Henrys, by 1940, were living in the tenement building at 120 Middleton Street in King's, while the Colas resided nearby at 85 Hopkins Street. The family lived in a four-room apartment in a multi-family tenement building at 120 Milton Street. When the family started expanding when he was seven, Peter started spending more time with his grandmother, who lived downstairs in the same building. While the living arrangements came with freedom from screaming babies and more attention, Peter had to help take care of his grandmother while learning how to fend for himself. It gave Peter more room. Educationally, Peter started out in Catholic school, attending Transfiguration on Marcy Street before switching to PS122. With few academics within his family, according to census records, Peter Chris spent more time fighting with nuns than he did learning. Peter wouldn't finish school, and ultimately he dropped out. Peter would later enroll at Westinghouse Technical School, where he studied dental mechanics in search of some skills that would offer better employment opportunities. Sports also played a part in Peter's life, with him recalling in his book, My mother talked me into joining the YMCA, so I would stay out of trouble. I love swimming. I won a trophy for that freestyle. I was so proud to go up and get my little trophy. It was the only thing that I had ever won in my life. I got into boxing at the Y, and I fought Golden Gloves for two years. Peter ultimately, along with his friend Jerry Nolan, graduated into gangs, such as the Young Lords and then the Phantom Lords. Peter makes it clear in his book that in terms of toughness and brutality, he had nothing on the primarily Puerto Rican membership in the gangs, who were the real badasses messing around with zip guns and baseball bats had limitations and there were inter-gang murders and drive-by shootouts peter would later write rumble a song detailing his experiences with gangs
1: i grew up in brooklyn it was a tough neighborhood a lot of gangs i was in gangs i i saw some my fair share of uh, danger uh, of violence i was violent i was in a gang i did I was making guns and selling them for five bucks a gun in my life when I was younger. Uh, It was the only way to survive in Brooklyn. You either join a gang or or they make you join them or you get beat up every day of your life.
0: Soon enough, after enough run-ins with other gangs and fights, both Peter and Jerry found something else to beat on. Drums. Growing up, music didn't play a large part of Peter's life. But as is the case with nearly everyone, it did provide a soundtrack. Whether it was watching the Liberace show, singing along to the Howdy Doody show theme song, or listening to Elvis on the radio, there was an inevitable exposure to music. Elvis was Peter Chris's first love though he was of an age where he obeyed when the school nuns banned the students from watching Elvis on the Ed Sullivan TV show. Peter's parents' musical tastes varied widely. Kiss fans firmly rooted in the rock genre that had emerged in the late 60s, Peter's influence seemed to be the strangest and in some way incomprehensible. What a difference his few years in age difference to the other band members would make in addition to his environment growing up. Peter's father loved ballroom dancing, and the music of the big bands such as Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, or Gene Krupa. Peter's mother preferred the popular music of the day, including Elvis, Gene Vincent, and Bill Haley. But it was Gene Krupa's drumming on Benny Goodman's Sing 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 that grabbed Peter's attention. Peter recalls, The rhythm of Gene Krupa's drums hit me like a lightning bolt from heaven. That was it for me. I wanted to be that guy playing the drums. Forget about being a fireman. I knew deep down inside that my destiny was to play drums. Even when I was five, I'd turn over my mother's pots and pans. I took her forks, butter knives, and wooden spoons and began banging away. I got addicted to it. Peter's parents bought him his first drums when he was seven. It was a Rudy Kazutti club TV show-endorsed toy kit, and it didn't survive his abuse long, and it was soon lying in pieces. Peter's father then assembled a makeshift set using garbage can lids paired to an old army marching band snare mounted on a wooden box as a bass drum. Peter decorated the makeshift drum kit with stars and glitter in honor of his doo-wop band, Stars. Playing along to the songs on the radio, Peter was soon developing rudimentary percussive skills. It wasn't too long before Peter's mother bought him a stereo. Peter would buy records to play along with, such as the Ventures' Walk Don't Run and the classic Wipe Out. Peter also recounted in his 1981 interview with Modern Drummer, that he had briefly been a member of his school's band before being thrown out for improvising his own march. By the time Peter was 12, he was gently backing casual doo-wop groups. It was really just a different version of the same sort of musical development and history that many others have gone through. By 1961, Peter was working as a delivery boy for a butcher when he was offered the chance to buy his first real drum kit. A set of Slingerland Radio Kings. Sure, they were old, having been made in 1935. The original mother-of-pearl finish had yellowed after years of being in a basement. But it didn't matter to Peter. Gene Krupa played Slingerlands. While Peter couldn't afford the $200 outright, The seller did agree to hold them for him when he paid off the total through his paychecks and various odd jobs. When talking about his first real drum kit, Peter recalls, I'll never forget bringing them home to my grandmother's apartment. I was walking down the street with the bass drum on my back, kicking the trap case in front of me, inch by inch, with the tom-tom on top of it. I finally got the whole set upstairs and into the kitchen. When I took them out of their cases and set them up, it was like an orgasm. If I could have slept with those drums, I would have. Peter Chris never received formal training or picked up in the technical lingo of an educated musician. His playing came from his feelings. His reaction to what he was hearing from his musical role models, be they the drummer of big bands or popular music, Jerry Nolan also helped Peter. Jerry passed on what he had learned for Peter to practice. But for Peter, playing with bands would provide the ultimate training.
1: Well, I grew up in a really tough neighborhood,
0: and it was all gangs. And uh, instead of playing stickball, I'd be practicing
1: drums. And uh, a lot of them now, I guess, are in sing sing, and uh, digging ditches and all used to make fun of me. Instead of coming down uh, and playing baseball, I'd be practicing
0: and uh, writing and singing. By 1964, the musical landscape was getting really exciting. Peter Chris was 18 years old, a youth with limited education and prospects. He wasn't much interested in working in the trades or being a dental technician. Peter had moved on from the butcher and worked at his Uncle George's bar. He dodged an early marriage. Like most teens, Peter got involved with girls, but he realized after dodging an early marriage that his real love was playing the drums. Peter was left with enough emotional baggage to keep himself unattached for years, focusing on drums. Life had become a treadmill. If anyone thought that Peter's life lacked direction, they had to look no further than music. Peter immersed himself in music, be it Smokey Robinson, The Crystals, The Temptations, The Four Tops, or The Ronettes. It was an incredible era of pop music that he and Jerry Nolan would see firsthand at Murray the K's hosted shows at the Academy of Music. Peter and Jerry also went to places such as the Village Vanguard to see Charlie Mingus or Thelonious Monk. It was a pure musical exploration without a map or a guide. Back at home, Peter discovered a local group practicing in one of the members' cellars. Peter hung around them and when their drummer quit Peter was offered the opportunity to audition and with his mother's help Peter lugged his drums over to the cellar successfully joining his first proper band the Barracudas Barracudas were soon playing semi-professionally at bars, bar mitzvahs, weddings, and they scored a steady booking at the King's Lounge. Little did Peter know that that single location would become important to Peter's then present and future. The music the Barracudas performed was perfect for the influences Peter had been experiencing up to this point. While the band had garage undertones and doo-wop and pop leanings clearly coming through, along with the twangy guitars and Jan and Dean-inspired harmonies, the band's leader was Carlos Cancel, and he and Peter were soon going to other musical venues to check out other bands together, such as the Metropole. The Metropole was one of the central homes to the New York jazz movement throughout the 1960s. Peter's musical adventures had introduced him to many players, and one such character was Joey Greco, who he had met in the village. Joey Greco's first professional band was the Firelighters. During 1962, the band did a tour of Brazil and Argentina before returning to the States in the middle of the year. Having started gigging in Florida, the band initially only played the New York club scene. Both Joey and the bassist, Ralph DiPietro, joined Johnny Holiday's band in November 1963. At the time, Joey was offered a spot in Johnny's band. He had problems with the membership of his own group, which helped make the decision to jump to another band appealing. Both the pianist and the drummer were going to be drafted for a tour in Vietnam. As a backing group for Johnny Holiday, the band became Joey Greco and the Showman. Joey returned to the United States in 1965 and formed a band while he waited to continue working with Johnny, who had to take time out from the musical scene to complete his French military service. Peter Chris got a big break when Joey Greco's band, The In Crowd, were playing at the Metropole. It was fortuitous that the band's drummer had broken both of his legs in a car accident on the way to a gig, and Joey needed someone to fill in for the summer. That Gene Krupa also played at the Metropole was simply a bonus for Peter. The early 1960s saw an older Gene Krupa, decades away from his 1930s heyday, with some serious health problems and in physical and technical decline. Regardless, Peter Chris was able to get some lessons, pointers, and guidance from the master himself, Gene Krupa. Gene Krupa's contributions to drumming range from style to the technical apparatus of the modern drummer. He had been one of the first artists to record using a bass drum and had requested technical improvements to both the tom-tom and hi-hat cymbal. Krupa apparently persuaded drum manufacturer Slingerland to make a separate tension tunable tom-tom instead of the then-standard non-tunable tacked head tom. The changes to symbols resulted in it being played with a stick rather than a foot, as had been common. For his showmanship and technical endeavors, Gene Krupa is often considered the father of modern drumming. Peter recalls in his book, I remember walking past his dressing room one night, and he was sitting in front of the mirror, smoking and drinking from a bottle of J&B scotch, slowly putting his bow tie on because he always wore a tux. It was a haunting and melancholy image to see my hero like that, how the mighty could fall. But I was still in awe of Gene. I must have been a pain in his ass telling him how I worshipped the ground he walked on, but he was always cordial. He showed me a few things on the drum. Peter also recalled the sort of input he got from Krupa in a 1997 interview in Rhythm Magazine. Peter says, I used to hang out at the stage door. And he'd come out, and I'd say hi, and he'd say hi, and I'd ask him if he had any time to show me this or that. A lot of times, he'd stop and really take the time to show me stuff. I just thought he was incredible. This education was informal, and could hardly be able to be described as being lessons. Regardless, any input was useful to Peter, whose skills were built more on enthusiasm than technical training. Most importantly, Gene Krupa encouraged Peter. With the gig with Joey Greco completed, Peter returned to gigging with the Barracudas at the King's Lounge. It wasn't much fun playing what has invariably been described as a mob joint, but it was a job, and it did at least come with a paycheck. It soon provided something more. During the summer of 1966, Peter met one Lydia Di Leonardo. A couple of years younger than him, She and Peter were soon an item, and Peter felt she was the sort of girl he could take home to his parents, though going steady didn't keep him from messing around. Lydia would become one of the most important factors to Peter's musical career. She worked and made it possible for him to be able to live the lifestyle associated with being a clubbing musician. It was just as well. Peter's tenure with the Barracudas wouldn't last. The Barracudas were very much starting at the bottom of the club scene playing top 40 material at clubs, such as the Highway Lounge, now the Black Betty on Metropolitan Avenue. As the band's leader, Carlos preferred instrumentals such as Tequila and Wiped Out, along with the early Beatles and The Stones and the obligatory Motown hits of the day. The wise guys at the lounge wanted a live radio, not the British invasion ruckus that was emerging in 1967. It may simply have been a matter of the band having run its course. They recorded two original songs in late 1966, It's Been So Long, and Affection, that were released in January 1967 on a local Vanity pressing label. Both songs were written by Carlos Cancel, with It's Been So Long being a lightweight ballad, more from the school of Frankie Avalon and the crooners of the late 1950s, Affection, on the other hand, was more garage band in style, with a slight nod to the Beach Boys. With the recruitment of one of Peter's friends to the band, Pepe Generali on keyboards, the dynamics of the bands changed in early 1967 and Carlos departed. With further lineup adjustments, including bringing in Joey Lucenti on guitar, bassist Angela Oper, and sax player Tommy Ventimiglia, the band changed its name to The Sounds of Soul.
2: bring such misery and pain, guess I'll never be the same, since I've been, well,
3: yeah.
0: It was pretty clear that Carlos continued with a version of his Barracudas, releasing a second single on Delight Records in 1968. It is unknown, but unlikely, that Peter had anything to do with this second single, but it was certainly a second release from a band that he'd been a member of. The new band, The Sounds of Soul, featured a spectrum of music, from pop covers to R&B soul. They played the New York club circuit, venues such as Scotty's on Carnaby Street, and the headline club of West 43rd. They even worked with Billy Joel's early band, The Hassles. The Sounds of Soul also started working further afield from the city, getting a week-long engagement at the Villa Capri in Albany, New York in October of 1967. Other venues the band played, for four dates in November 1967, was Caesar's Pad in Mount Freedom, New Jersey. The band ranged as far as Washington, D.C., where they performed a two-week run at the Rocket Room.
3: What you want, honey, you got it What you need, baby, you got it But all I'm is
0: The band also spent time in the studio working on originals and a set of covers, including Since I Fell For You, My Girl, and Respect. Peter sang lead on the last of these tracks. It should also be noted that gig contracts from this period invariably list Peter as being the leader of the band. This certainly makes it appear that Peter was playing an active role in his bands, rather than just being the drummer. Being more than a drummer also meant that Peter wanted to sing, and this led him to moving from one band to another. According to Peter, the society band was fun, but it was the same old story. I wasn't permitted to sing, and nobody wanted to hear my originals. However, playing his originals wasn't as important as making a living, and that partially was key to Peter. While his future bandmates were finishing school, playing in basements, Peter was plying his craft nightly in the clubs, invariably honing his skills and developing as a musician. And so I had an edge to me
1: that was was great, I guess, for a drummer because drummers should be crazy. We should be animals. We should bash things, and I loved to bash things. And I had a major temper then. Uh, I hated the war. I hated the idea of the war. Uh, it was wrong, it, you know. I protested against. I was in a lot of protesting back then. I got involved in a lot of uh, political stuff, and I was an angry young man. I was an angry drummer, and I and I think it, I got it out
0: every night on them drums. By May of 1968, the Sounds of Soul changed their name to the Brotherhood when Tommy Ventimiglia departed the band. The band changed their name again in November to The Vintage and took part in New Groove 1969's Young Talent Show held at the Academy of Music on January 10th, 1969. They performed an original song entitled The Gypsy. According to the band's bio in the New Groove concert program, The Vintage play Acid Rock, but with feeling making this a very good year for acid rock. The difference is four good musicians. The vintage is serious about joining the ranks of the professional musical groups and are working on it full time. The band won their category in the contest and were rewarded with a demo session at associate recording studios, where they recorded an original song. What is a man? Whatever the case, having included some of the same musicians as the Sounds of Soul, the band had run its course by the end of March when Joey Licente departed to get married. Purportedly, the acetate of these originals recorded by Sounds of Soul still exist. Peter Criss continued to work with Peppy, and the two joined a band entitled Nautilus, which included Kevin Reese on guitar and Peter Shandis on bass. Nautilus entered the club grind and performed over 140 nights between August 5th of 69 and August of 1970, including a jam session at Peter and Lydia's wedding on January 31st. Joining the band on that occasion was saxophonist Buddy Bowser, who was a member of Peter's Best Man, Jerry Nolan's band, Maximilian. Meanwhile, Lydia had placed an ad in the December 27, 1969 issue of Rolling Stone magazine, seeking a good, funky, hard rock band to play a hip wedding. They ended up hiring a band that played with Nautilus at one of their club engagements. But in the end, Peter had had enough when it was clear that the band Nautilus was going nowhere. After he returned from a belated honeymoon with Lydia in Spain and England in May of 1970, Peter placed an ad in the Village Voice in search of a new band. The search for a new band may not have been as easy as Peter would have liked, Peter has recounted a series of additions before finding Mike Brand and Peter Shepley, the principal creative forces behind Chelsea. In fact, with Lydia having been laid off from her work at Abercrombie & Fitch, things may have become economically challenging for the young couple. In the October 15th issue of Rolling Stone magazine, Peter was trying to sell his beloved set of Slingerlands for $150. Chelsea was a folk-tinged band, very representative of the era in which they existed. Flower power, though without the power building somewhat on that post-Newport Dylan and what might be described as acid rock. Peter came into the band in time to participate in the recruitment of bassist Michael Benvenga. Chelsea was formed in the period immediately following demise of another Shepley band, the Van Goghs, who had primarily performed covers on the club college scene of Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Peter Shepley was keen to reunite with Mike Brand. The two had previously been in the recording band, The Others, while they were students at the University of Rhode Island. The Others were one of the most popular bands in the area at the time, they had released three singles during their brief career. Due to Brand and Shepley's connections, Chelsea quickly secured management and a recording deal with Decca Records. They started rehearsing and recording their album in the autumn of 1970. Initially, it was more of a vanity project, and the band wouldn't perform live until a series of showcases at the Village Gate in February 1971, which coincided with the release of their self-titled album. Chelsea's success was non-existent, though. While they had a recording contract, their visibility was regionally limited, even though their album later turned up in various international markets. Neither did the inclusion of John Cale from The Velvet Underground and Steve Loeb, a session pianist and later producer for the band Riot, help raise their visibility, nor did the string arrangements by Larry Fallon. The album was reviewed in the January 23rd issue of Billboard magazine. It gave it four stars, but it didn't say anything useful to interest anyone in the band. The album was at least properly reviewed in Cashbox magazine. The review said Chelsea, whether it be in the New York or London version, is known as a varied and colorful part of the town. Now it is also known as a five-man group, which has put out an album of more than passing interest. Throughout this LP, the mood shifts from a fast-paced item such as "Rollin' Along, a good example of happy music, to the more percussive rhythms of Ophelia and the gentleness of Let's Call It A Day an original offering from a band which should be heard from some more. One of Chelsea's songs, Hard Rock Music, was included on the sampler album, The MCA Sound Conspiracy. The MCA sampler album, issued via a subsidiary label of Decca, was designed to offer the various labels under the MCA umbrella a method to promote releases from their roster of artists during the first quarter of the year. Other acts on the release included Glass Harp, Fanny Adams, Virgil Fox, and Wishbone Ash. Unlike the more famous series of Lost Leaders by Warner Brothers, the MCA release was a full-price album considered to consist of 11 singles. In some ways, Peter was less than a drummer in Chelsea, and more of a percussion player, simply supporting the acoustic elements in many of the songs, some of which simply feel more like folksy jams or acoustic tangents. Being an unknown band didn't help push the record, and gigs were few and far between. The band played less than 30 shows during the first six months of 1971, and when they did play, their earnings barely covered their expenses, if at all. Before long, the band was falling apart. In May, Chelsea guitarist Chris Aretas departed the band, but Chelsea soldiered on and was replaced by Stan Penridge, who answered the band's ad in the Village Voice. Stan Penridge recalls the audition. Quote, the audition was held at Peter Shepley's apartment and set up for 2 p.m., if I recall correctly. When I arrived, Mike Brand was already there. For some reason, Peter was supposed to be there also, to vote on whether or not I was capable to fill Chris's shoes. An hour passed without Peter showing. At that point, I had listened to their first album. My track record was enough along with my playing to land me the gig. We actually even recorded a tune that Peter Shepley and Mike Brand had been working on, but had reached a snag. Peter was initially furious that a new band member had been chosen without his input and consent, simply being presented to Peter as a new member of the band. Stan Penridge has suggested that Peter was so upset that he quit the band, but he was eventually persuaded back, according to Stan. He didn't want to quit. His pride was hurt, and Peter was never one for confrontation. His survival instincts and personality, in most cases, was more than the flight than the fight. Conversely, Peter in his autobiography has suggested that he initially didn't care for Stan Penridge, though eventually the situation was resolved, and Stan and Peter formed a musical relationship that lasted some 15 years. Joining Chelsea must have been a challenge for Peter. Prior to that, Peter had been a leader in his bands, taking on the responsibilities for engagement bookings and paperwork. He also played a role on the creative side, but in Chelsea, the brand Shepley-Axis dominated. This would cause issues down the road. Just days after joining the band, Chelsea played their first gig with Penridge, one that Stan recalled was a dayline cruise for a fundraiser held by young Republicans of New York City. Unfortunately, Peter missed the gig when the boat on which they were to play left without him, leaving him stranded on the dock. It was an inauspicious start for a refreshed band that saw its first concert played with a fill-in young Republican drummer. The band started rehearsing new material and booked a series of shows at the Yellow Front Saloon in Fort Lee, New Jersey, the first week of August 1971. Those first shows went well, though the band still weren't earning enough after expenses. A second week of bookings followed. Stan Penridge provided a fresh perspective and creativity to the band, yet the underlying musical tensions that had always been apparent in the band ultimately broke Chelsea up before they got very far into material for the album. Chelsea played one more showcase of their new material for producer Lou Marinstein, but after that, there was no further contact. The band splintered into acoustic and electric factions, with Shepley and Brand being on the former. Peter and Michael Benvenga were on the electric side, with Stan straddling both sides of the road. As the new guy, he was stuck in the middle. He continued to work separately with Shepley and Brand recording demos and writing. Stan Penridge recalled the final breakup of the band Chelsea. Chelsea Died the Night Lips was born. It was August 1971, the Yellow Front Saloon in Fort Lee, New Jersey. Shepley and Brand were habitually late, but this particular night, there was a large audience. Packed and getting a bit restless and quite boisterous, after missing the first set, I suggested doing the second set as a trio. I think it was meant to be. We thought a second. I said, Blue Suede Shoes, and that was it. Everything that didn't work in Chelsea made Lips great. The strong rhythm that Peter complimented freed Mike to fly. It felt together, so naturally. Peter would roll off his tums into a crash, and I'd solo. Somewhere in the heavens, I'd open my eyes, just as Peter would come around to reel me in for the next verse. It was a magical group, and things like that just don't last long, unfortunately. The two different factions of the bands went their own directions without rancor. With Mike Brand and Peter Shepley pursuing their eclectic folk style and Benevenga, Chris and Penridge staying in New York to do their thing. The band would be called Lips. And while Lips still performed covers, the artists that they covered at least included Cream and Jimi Hendrix, and more of the then-current rock scene. After a couple months of rehearsals in late October, Lips made their debut, and they were quickly gigging on a regular basis. Unfortunately, the band Lips would not have a long run. What started out in a satisfying manner soon became a grind, and the downward spiral for the members themselves. The clean break and rejuvenated motivation resulted in the band starting out positively. And there was a transformation, with the primary songwriters now being Peter Chris, and Stan Penridge. The two would spend hours together working on song ideas, which Stan would write down in his Wizard book. Peter was more than a co-writer credit. He was a co-writer of much of the material that they worked on. On February 22, 1972, Lips recorded a session at RCA Studios adding a guitarist, John Amato, to their lineup. Stan recalled that they recorded versions of Baby Driver, Dirty Livin', Don't You Let Me Down, and You're My Woman. While nothing came of these demos, the band was able to persuade Sutra Records for some more studio time at Bell Sound Studios, where the band recorded a further five demos, most of which turned up on Peter's 1978 solo album.
2: Seen cases like this before. Your boy's been vaccinated with a big trolling needle. It's hooked on rock and roll. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, right. Well, now, Mama asked the doctor, What well, is there something I can do? Doc said, No, you can't kill his soul once it's infected with do Well, now most I've found just travel round and your boy's cut from that molar. He's been vaccinated with a petrol needle. He's so on rock and roll. Baby, bring home rock, that pay let to rock and rock, rock away. Well, mama told me long ago, she said, baby, want a future, quit your rock and roll. I said, mama,
3: you're
2: never going to see it go home. Well, she's been saying since time began, yeah. cut your hair, baby, I'm hooked on
0: Lips also auditioned for Bob Reno, a oh, yeah. vice president at Commerce Sutra Records, which was at the time headed by one Neil Bogart before he formed Casablanca Records. It is here that memories are conflicted. Stan recalled... We never performed a Kama Sutra for Neil. That's one of Peter's stories. Bob Reno, the vice president at Kama Sutra, is a guy I contacted, and the person we auditioned for. He's the guy that paid for both five-song sessions. He also gave me the master's after Neil passed on lips later that month. Actually, Beck is one of the only songs we didn't perform for Bob Reno or record during either session. Peter Chris disagrees and recalled auditioning for Bob and Neil, who were aghast when the trio came into the office carrying a bongo. They were positively received, but not enough to get a deal. Lips soon became a duo and Michael Benvanga quit in April of nineteen seventy two. After it became apparent to him that he needed to take care of his future and couldn't dedicate it to music. Marrying in 1974, he went to work in a bank and died, tragically, in 1977, resulting in the dedication that appears on the back of Peter Chris's 1978 solo album. For some time, Stan Penridge and Peter Chris continued in hopes of building a career, but by this point, it must have been somewhat half-hearted even though they'd continue to work together occasionally even after peter met one gene simmons and one paul stanley lydia chris has asserted in her book sealed with a kiss that hardcore drug usage particularly by stan penridge had been an issue since he had become involved with chelsea peter confirmed in his autobiography how sketchy the situation had become Baby. In June of 1972, with Lips now on life support, Peter Chris moved away from performing originals with Stan to connecting with his buddy Joey Lucente in a 1950s revival greaser band named Infinity. Stan Penridge, too, was looking for new options and joined St. Elmo's Fire. Peter had essentially come full circle and was back at the King's Lounge playing Human Jukebox once again. While his situation was creatively dire, it was paying the bills and motivated Peter to keep trying to make it. Playing music as a working musician is all Peter ever wanted to do, and there was no question of him getting a regular full-time job. With Lydia working, Peter wasn't lounging about in their home. He was out on the streets playing whatever and whenever. His dream remained firmly embedded in his heart. To that point, every experience he had had was part of his personal evolution, and he had learned something from each one. Peter recalls that the 50s revival greaser band, Infinity, quote, got me away from Stan and got me playing in front of an audience again. I thought that maybe somebody would come into the club and say, Jesus, look at this guy. He's got talent. It was, as Peter put it, starting from scratch, married age 26. My
1: mom used to say that God gave me a talent and it would be such a sin to waste it. Uh, wasted talent was a big thing with her. It's a shame to see people waste their talents.
0: Peter also paid his bills doing session work at the record plant on commercials engineered by Shelley Ackerson. Feeding the desire to keep fighting for his chosen career, Peter Chris placed a simple ad in the Rolling Stone Magazine Classified section. It simply read, experienced rock and roll drummer, looking for an original group doing soft and hard music. It was a bland, perhaps even unexciting ad, but it was a roll of the dice. And it worked. The ad was spotted by another young man who was tired of being in bands that just did covers one Gene Simmons. Jean called Peter, who was having a fix-up-the-apartment party at his new apartment that he and Lydia had moved into over Memorial Day. After introducing himself, Gene asked Peter a few seemingly inane questions about Peter's weight, his hair length, his looks, and such. The straight-shooting Italian in Peter Chris didn't appreciate the multiple-choice test and suggested that they meet. Ultimately, it was Gene who wanted to know if Peter was willing to do anything to make it. Gene Simmons mentioned that his band had worked with producer Ron Johnson, who had also engineered Chelsea's studio sessions. Gene suggested a meeting at the Electric Ladies studio. It wasn't designed to impress. Gene and his musical partner had been doing session work at the studio. So it was a convenient location, and Peter wasn't impressed. He'd already been there. When Peter arrived, he went to the studio and asked for Gene and Paul, only to be directed to look out the window at the two guys sitting in the car. Gene and Paul showed up wearing hippie-styled second-hand store clothing, and Peter, along with his brother Joey, had barely noticed them outside the studios. They looked like a couple of bums. Upon seeing Gene and Paul, Peter flipped out after the line of questioning about style he had been subjected to during the initial telephone call. However, this didn't stop him from going down and introducing himself to the two aspiring musicians. With Ron Johnson remembering Peter, he provided bona fides to Gene and Paul that Peter was in fact the real deal. Peter has suggested that Ron Johnson told Gene and Paul that they didn't even need to audition him. It has been suggested that this was the day that peter along with Joey ended up participating in that "Ling Christopher" session, providing gang clapping for a song. With the band Infinity having dates scheduled at the King's Lounge, peter invited Jean and Paul to come and see him play so that they could get a better idea about him. Seeing the energy and the fury which peter performed in a club! Paul Stanley was immediately sold on Peter for one major factor, his voice. Peter recalled that Paul thought he sounded like Wilson Pickett and wanted him on the spot. Gene and Paul scheduled a proper audition at their loft. Unfortunately, Peter Chris felt uncomfortable playing Wicked Lester's drummers, Tony Zarella's drum kit in this case, and he did not perform particularly well, not liking the music they were asking him to perform. Once Peter Chris brought his own kit to the Loft and rearranged the songs to work for him, he was more comfortable, confident, and gave the sort of performance he felt was required for the sort of originals that Gene and Paul were playing. Gene, Paul, and Peter became a trio. Still nominally called Wicked Lester, and they started a heavy schedule of rehearsals in the Loft. Peter was impressed by their motivation and drive. He was less sure of their control and driving force behind what they were doing. They were inexperienced, and he was seasoned, but he certainly saw an opportunity. How committed was Peter Chris? He continued to do gigs with both Lips and Infinity. Rehearsing with Gene and Paul didn't come with any cash, and he still had bills to pay. With music as his career, he was also still on the lookout for even more enticing opportunities, and likely would have jumped if one had presented itself. And one certainly did come along that he could not try out for. There was a local band that was making waves on the scene, the New York Dolls. The Dolls had not yet signed a record deal, but they had lost their original drummer when Billy Murcia died in England in November 1972 following an overdose. It was around this time that Peter, Gene, and Paul were performing a disastrous showcase for a label executive. Peter, Mark Bell, also known as Marky Ramone, who had been a member of Dust with Richie Wise, and Jerry Nolan were some of those interested in the gig but Jerry ultimately won the spot in the New York Dolls. The Dolls played their first gig with him at the Mercer Arts Center on December 19, 1972. Presumably, Peter attended, though Peter may have been preoccupied with auditions his band were planning. Interestingly, the Planets opened at that gig, and days later the Dolls were playing at the Village East, with the Tramps and Teenage Lust, Some of those bands will be mentioned again later on Podkistry Refocused.